0: Gia Grieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. This evening's programme again comes from the west of Ireland, where, in a few minutes, we'll be hearing one of Galway's most accomplished poets, Mary O'Malley, and from three musicians from County Mayo. But first, as part of our ongoing series about pilgrimage, we're joined tonight by Michael Kelly, Managing Editor of the Irish Catholic Newspaper, who's led many pilgrimages of Irish people to the Holy Land. As we heard from Damien Bracken last week, Irish people have in fact been making pilgrimages to Jerusalem since the early Middle Ages. While Michael Kelly's pilgrimages include Jerusalem, they also cover many other sites in the Holy Land, which refers to the modern state of Israel, the Palestinian territories, western Jordan, parts of southern Lebanon and southwestern Syria. Michael has just released a book guiding Irish pilgrims through all these sites. Michael, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith.
1: Thanks for having me, Siobhan.
0: Your book is the culmination of a great deal of research, but also your personal experience of visiting the Holy Land many times. Why did you want to share this odyssey with others?
1: I mean... The first time I went to the Holy Land I was just 18 and I really didn't know what to expect but I completely fell in love with the place. I was absolutely intoxicated with every corner and I really want to try to help people uh, I guess build that love for the Holy Land that I have uh, help to deepen their their faith their, their understanding and their appreciation for just how important this tiny this really really small place is you know inhabited today by people you know of, of many many different backgrounds and it's such a such a cosmopolitan mix there in the Holy Land uh, particularly of the three great world religions who, who share that land uh, the, the, the Jews the Christians of the Muslims.
0: When we usually hear about um, the ways in which Jewish people, Muslims and Christians uh, coalesce in the city of Jerusalem, um, specifically and the Holy Land more broadly, um, it's usually in the context of conflict. But you describe it in ways that encourage understanding the interfaith links in a positive way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess part of that is my background growing up in in Northern Ireland as well. Not to make uh, an exact uh, comparison between Northern Ireland and the Holy Land because the situations are very different. But yet in the midst of the conflict in Northern Ireland growing up, we we lived our daily lives. We, uh, you know, worked with people from other communities. We lived side by side with people from other communities. And that very much happens in the Holy Land as well. Of course, conflict is part of the situation and uh, there are sometimes flare-ups and uh, look ultimately we're living with a situation where there is an unresolved peace process uh, the peace process has been dormant for quite a long time now in the Holy Land and there is that unresolved issue of how the uh, the, the, the land is shared between the people that are there and yet in the midst of that lack of resolution uh, people do work together, people do live together, people do uh, business together and it's hugely important for the pilgrims who visit there, the, the vast bulk of whom obviously are Christian, that there is really good cooperation between the local people. And uh, that's something that one uh, notices there very, very acutely.
0: And in general, there's a, a really great light touch to your book, even though it's about really serious things. And and its size, it's, it's ergonomic, you could carry it with you. But... Um, it's more than a tourist guide, isn't it? There's there's quite a, a lot of faith commentary, which um, really adds to the genre that you're producing here. So you emphasize that traveling to the Holy Land can offer Christians an opportunity to deepen their faith. And you describe walking um, in Jesus's footsteps as a so-called fifth gospel, as if the, the New Testament accounts gain a a, a sibling, an an additional account, um, simply by being there and putting your feet where the, the feet of the people in the Gospels trod.
1: Yeah, that was very much the the sense that I've always had there and I wanted to try to get that sense across. For many, many people, it is a pilgrimage of faith. Another thing that I wanted the book to do, and uh, this is why I really wanted to bring the faith perspective to it as well, I'm conscious of people who will never go to the Holy Land. They never just, the opportunity won't arise or they won't feel inclined to go. And I wanted them still to be able to, in a sense, be able to sit in their armchair at home. So if you like, people could do a mini pilgrimage or uh, a mini retreat they could read about the places but also then reflect on the scriptural passages which refer to the uh, specific place and try to see the thing uh, very much through the eyes of faith as well and at the same time then for people who would be travelling that it was the kind of book that they could uh, they could put in their back pocket they could throw into their rucksack and when they arrived at a place they could they could take it out for a few minutes and just, just have a look around so that they would uh, understand the senses and that's why I, I like the idea of pause and reflect just giving people the opportunity to put themselves in the moment of, of what happened there and see what it is saying to them in that particular moment of their life and you know what what it's saying to you one day it'll say that's something different another day and it, you know that's part of the beauty of uh, that, that kind of reflection.
0: Each each of the, of the many places you talk about in your book um, has a story And um, as you say, it's an open story. People will find their own story in it and some Mm. will appeal to some more than others. And you discuss the cities with the names that Christians will easily recognize, obviously like Jerusalem and Bethlehem, Jericho, but you also discuss the desert and lakes and mountains and many, many places. And I was wondering, if I may, which locations have left the strongest impression on you? Which have stories that spoke most keenly to you?
1: I mean, I would say I love all of the area around the the Sea of Galilee. I, I love the, the, the beauty of it, the natural ruggedness of it. I mean, I love the fact that with uh, the mountains and the lake there, it's largely a place that is unchanged over the last 2,000 years. So as we experience it, we experience it as Jesus experienced it, as his first followers experienced it. It really brings alive to me just how small those uh, local areas were. If you think, of uh, places like uh, Tabka, where you know we record that the miracle of the loaves and fishes happened, or you know the Capernaum, which calls itself now the uh the, the, the town of Jesus, because of course mm. the tradition records that whenever Jesus was uh, ran out of Nazareth by the people of Nazareth, he went to live in uh, in in Capernaum, another place I would say that uh, I really, really love to visit is the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. when you go to the heart of the church you see this little spot where you can touch the ground where from the earliest times people have believed that this is where the manger of Jesus was laid and you see the simplicity of it. And that speaks to me a lot because I think sometimes we overcomplicate religion and we tend sometimes to make it very, very bureaucratic and very uh, structural and very about uh, writing things down. But actually you see that the, um, you know, perhaps ostentatious power of the world is really contrasted by the simplicity of the nativity and if you go back and read that nativity narrative just just how simple it was and that really speaks to me there. The book um, turns toward
0: Jerusalem having uh, educated me I imagine others too about just the wealth of other distinct locations that remain to some degree available to to visit Mm. Um, does, does when you're leading pilgrimages um, does the mood get because pre- you know you're talking about Tabor and you know that's now very famous for beer and mm. the Cana and it's wine <laughs> and Bethlehem which you've already mentioned and uh, this yeah, the is, shepherd's you know. beer there <laughs> <laughs> you know it's all really relatable and enjoyable and then of course we have this layer of Jesus' um, Jesus's, um Teachings and ministry and scripture and the tradition of interpretation of scripture, and then we get to Jerusalem. And when you're taking people around, does the mood suddenly become really quite sombre? There,
1: there certainly is. A, there certainly is a difference in moods. Uh, there's there's no question about that. Particularly on, for example, the Via Dolorosa, when we retrace the the way of the cross, the way that the route that Jesus took on that first Good Friday. Because one of the things we do, the pilgrims take turns at carrying a cross and that's very moving and very meaningful for people so uh, that that does create a certain sombre mood but it, it can be um, it can be funny as well because uh, you're going through the streets of a very bustling city where people are trying to get to work people are trying to do their shopping kids are trying to go to school and here you are 50 Irish pilgrims kind of coming through the streets <laughs> of their tiny little town with your cross interfering their daily life so I like to say to people you know that that's how it was on the first Good Friday as well you know if we Think that you know everyone stopped what they were doing, you know, for this uh, carpenter from Nazareth who was going to be crucified. To look on is solemnly. They they certainly didn't, and uh, people go on with their lives now as well. So I think that gives a sense of reality to it as well, experiencing that this is the kind of grittiness of what it would have been like on the first Good Friday. But certainly, it's. Um, it's solemn for people, it's a moment of profound reflection for people, particularly then when we make it to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where there is the site of the crucifixion, the site where Christ's body was laid. But of course, and you know, this is at the heart of the Christian story as well, the the good news of the empty tomb that is there in the same complex because of course, uh, after Good Friday comes, Easter Sunday.
0: Michael Kelly, editor of The Irish Catholic and author of the new book, an Irish pilgrimage guide to the Holy Land. Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith.
1: Thank you, Siobhan. It's been a pleasure.
0: Mary O'Malley is a poet with nine collections published so far. A native of Connemara, she's a member of Asthorna and teaches at NUI Galway. Mary, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. Your poetry is rooted in the natural world of Connemara, what is the importance of place in our lives, do you think? Um, in
2: my life, it's very important. Um, I think I first started, I think most of us do actually, uh, to create, recreate the world and make sense of the world as from a small child in terms of the place you're in. Now, because... I came from a place where we were still quite close to our own mythology and music and song, to an extent, you know. Um, I knew that when a rock was called something, because all the names were in Irish, um, I knew what that meant, and I knew what the village name meant. So I think that adds an, uh, an urgency or an importance or a relevance, perhaps, to your sense of place.
0: You've written about music, especially traditional music, such as in playing the octopus. Yeah. The ways in which you have written about it seem to me at least to be deeply spiritual. Do you think music plays a very important role in our spiritual lives? For for me it does, yeah.
2: Partly um I think it gives you the beat of the word. Uh the traditional music gives us the beat of where of our own particular tradition, you know, our own bit of the world. Other people's traditions give us the beat of their bit of the world, if you like. And classical music or orchestrated music gives us that bigger, great sort of spatial picture. Uh, both I find equally wonderful and necessary. Um, I grew up with, well, everybody played music. I didn't. So I could only say a poem, which was only <laughs> the lesser, the lesser accomplishment. Mm. Um, there was music around, but you had to make your own. People made their own music, and it was um, as necessary as breath, really. Quite honestly, and and very connected with the breath, which equally poetry is very connected with the breath. But I think uh, to go back, the the basic notion of incantation in almost every religion exists you know just there's something powerful about the incantatory I'm not sure what it
0: is but it's elevating generally In your poem Credo you say every step I dance each glance of love and glistening note from a golden saxophone is an act of faith for I believe in the resurrection of the damned how do dancing and music making and listening to or responding to music function as faith? How do they save us? I think they function as faith for a lot of people. I mean,
2: if I, I can't speak for black Americans, for example, or African people, but that's the most obvious thing that comes to mind when you listen to the blues or, or um, you listen to uh, African music. You know, I mean, sometimes that music is created in under very difficult conditions. It seems to keep the heart up. For one thing, Um, I think music is very connected with resilience as well, uh, with psychological resilience. And there seems to be something about being able to sing it out,
0: you know, or dance it out. Mary, would you please read us a poem, maybe from your most recent collection? Gaudant Angeli? I should say something
2: about the title of this. Yes, I will, actually. About the title of this, um, which is that it was a sort of slightly defiant title. One of the things I I feel uh, is that in all of the talk of victimhood, and there are an awful lot of victims, but I think there should perhaps or could be an equal emphasis on resilience... This human resilience is the most extraordinary thing. And the, I mean, it goes back to that line you mentioned of the resurrection of the damned. I think that's what that's about. This notion of um, the possibility of redemption, I suppose, in our own lives. Um, and so that's, the, I decided to use Angels Be Praised from the old, my old Latin teacher. I think perhaps I'll read a poem from my grandson because this is really about love. Making Marmalade for Ethan. It's years since I've done it, this desperate stay against midwinter. Too much bother, headwreck, fuss, too many easier ways to spend time. Now here they are, a hill of bitter oranges to climb, a burst of solar flares, slice and chop, Juice as sour as hyssop. It takes time to trap this in a jar. The sharp blade, the pith and pit and slide of it, the careful weighing of sugar. I stirred the pot until the mess thickened and sweetened January. All day I watched you watching the oranges circling in their own solar system orbiting the kitchen in a slow whirl and Gaudent angeli, kept there by love's uplifting force, bright suns
0: that spun around your absent face. I believe you were good friends uh, with John O'Donohue, the author of Anamkara. Would it be right that you also um, were able to uh, tell him about uh, practices, uh, rituals, traditions that sustained people profoundly um, which were not associated with the priest in the building of the church oh, but which had come down through yeah. generations. Yeah. Could you tell us about yeah, some we, of we them? T- we
2: totally agreed on that. You know, yeah. um, I hadn't even been aware, I think, until I don't know what age I was that most of what we practised wasn't in the Roman church calendar at all, you know. And there was no particular um, tension between that and what. Well, I never saw a tension, no. none. Um, so I grew up still in the, where the uh, connection to the landscape was very deep. And so you had the patron, you had the blessed well. We all had our, each local saint. Ours was St. Colleen. His um, feast day was November. Um, Macdara then was also celebrated because of the boats. My father was a fisherman. And um, the 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 other thing that was very important were the blessed wells. Um, and most wells, or some of the wells, were associated with particular healing. You know, this one on the Arneands associated with eyes. Um, we I loved the blessed well. I absolutely adored it. Um, all the little trinkets hanging on it, and so on. And also the seven circles. That was very important. Poetic, you know, as as poetry as well as much as anything.
0: Tell us
2: about the seven circles going around the well. You took the seven circles clockwise, obviously, around the well. You picked up seven stones first, and for a young child, this is magical somehow. And you threw one in each time you passed. Of course, that was only to mark when you were finished, so that you wouldn't be uh, distracted by counting them. Um, but but that's not what mattered to the child, you know, or even to the adult. Then, I mean, South Connemara, they had these triangular wells and the really magical ones. They were freshwater wells, but under the high water mark down the tide with fish in them often. And I might read The Blessed Well from my second book, written by a much younger woman. <laughs> I should say. This is from uh, Where the Rocks Float, which title itself comes from an old legend <clears throat> about St. Colin, the saint whose well this was. At the Blessed Well. Beyond the end of the road where only hungry sheep and pilgrims know what lies between them and the grey Atlantic, two stone man's mark time. Ernest at thirteen in her thin dress and thick coat, she shivered off her shoes. Her feet shriveled and turned a faint blackberry blue on the thirteenth of November. Seven circles, sure, slow. As each one joined, she threw a stone into the well. The shale gleamed with frost, and pennies from people who had nothing lay greening on holy ground. But the well, they said, was always warm and often cured. She circled seven times, certain of her saint. Little bracelets of ripples edged the water. Below, the sea raged. Her feet on fire, she told prescribed prayers for fortitude, deliverance and a happy death. Rebelling at the last station, she risked it all and begged Colleen For a little palace in the sun, the kind that nestles between the covers of her 101 nights. The seventh stone dropped in. It disappeared like a confessed sin. Cleansed, she ran up the jagged hill. It's not cold, not cold at all, she cried, determined for a
0: miracle. Mary O'Malley, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. We return now to the ways in which music is part not only of specific pilgrimages, but also plays a vital role in life's pilgrimage in general. I'm delighted to be joined again by musicians from here in the west of Ireland, tonight playing tunes from their musical ancestors in County Mayo. Julie Langan on fiddle, Mary Staunton on accordion, and Declan Askin on guitar. You're all very welcome to The Leap of Faith. You have some observations from your experience at the recent Willie Clancy Summer School in Miltown Malby Yes yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: you know when we go to our Mecca we uh. go, you know our annual pilgrimage <laughs> <laughs> to, Me- to Miltown Malby <laughs> and you know you go through the cross savannah, I was trying to get to Coors so you to go to Coors and all the way and then we went back through Mulloch and all those places we knew all these little town limbs in Clare because some places we'd never been but we know from tunes too you so know from I suppose the tunes, right, the tunes yeah, yeah. yeah. So put them all on the map. So you're learning the geography and the history, history. and the whole lot. Yes. Yeah. All in the, the and one. And the feelings and of really. the people.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is the names of the tunes, you mean, that yeah. the, the mm. tell you about the, the landscape. Yeah. Mm. And then
3: there's, of course, then there's the, uh, I suppose the landscape is such a part of it. But then you'd, in that, then you'd have so many names of tunes with, you know, people, uh, you know, People's you know, names. People's names. Yeah. And Go oh, those back. too, going mm. way back. McFadden. Yeah. And Mayo and the McGrath. McGraths and the Henry's. And, yeah. The Henry's. And then the younger generation of the Holigarities and the rest of them, you know, it's lovely that they're all being preserved. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So with the way that people, it's like ancestry, isn't it? Yes. You know, and the, the mythologies that go with people and places and stories, the, the richness, the density, yeah, the layers right. that are just in the name of the yeah. simple seeming name of a tune. It's very, uh, it's very misleading. There's a lot more going on yeah. in that. You mentioned McFadden, and he was a neighbour of yours,
3: wasn't well, he? Yes, well, he was a neighbour a good while before me, but... <laughs> <laughs> John McFadden, he was... Um, well, we think he was born in, in uh, 1847, so Black 47, which is not a great year to be born in Ireland. And then he, um, he, he was born in Caramore, which is just over the next townland. We were in um, Colmore and Le Carreau and Caramore, they'd be all beside each other there. And uh, he immigrated, then we reckon, around the age of 12 himself and his brother and his father uh, they, we have records of them arriving off the boat yeah. mm. but um, and they were all fiddle players the three of them which shows there must have been so much mm. music in the area at the time you know mm. yeah yeah
0: so there's um, is he the one who later went on to write The Pleasures of Hope
3: yeah well he's credited with writing The Pleasures of Hope which mm. is, I, knew, I don't know if he put the name on it but what a great name for someone born in the middle of 1847 <laughs> to have a mm. tune called so optimistic. Optimistic. Very, optimistic. Very hopeful. <laughs> Very hopeful. Yeah. Mary
0: O'Malley was in here earlier and she was talking about resilience and I think of the ways in which music gives you resilience, yeah. you know, to have yeah. tunes and songs in your head, never mind they, once you're able to express them as beautifully as you guys can do. Yeah. You know, there's a, the, it builds um, an ability to deal with, in his case, I imagine, desperate Desperate yes. conditions, poverty, suffering, yeah. separation, on uh, the pain of all of that. Mm. Do you want to play that? We can, yes. Well, Isn't when you've lost
3: hope, like that's kind of it. Yeah, yeah. If you don't, yeah, mm. there's zero pleasure then. Yeah, <laughs> if you have no hope, it's, you know what it's I mean. It's, like it's not a great, great place to be if you have no, no hope. No monsters, hope. Once there's there's, there's pleasure. always pleasure. Yeah. Hmm. 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 Or the possibility of it. Oh, yeah. At yeah. the very least. There's
1: life at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> there is.
0: Pleasures of Hope, performed by Julie Langen, Mary Staunton and Declan Askin. And I look forward to hearing more music and perhaps more chat too from you on next week's programme. Thank
3: you very much. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you, Siobhan. Fantastic. Thank
2: you. The Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Colin
1: Barker. The broadcast coordinator was Jarlet Holland and the producer was Sheila O'Callaghan.